0: Welcome back and happy November 30th, 2020. Interestingly, if you can take your mind back two weeks, headline after headline stated the United States, Donald Trump, was considering an attack on Iran. It was odd and a bit lost due to the election contratat, but go look. It was all there. Now, of a sudden, Israel is being alleged to have assassinated the nuclear weapons scientist par excellence in Iran. But it doesn't end there. As Scott Johnson notes, the reports for the past few days bring a new meaning to the word confusing. On November 27th, for example, the New York Post reported that Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was assassinated in an ambush. The story added that Fakhrizadeh was seriously wounded during a battle between the gunman and his bodyguards before being rushed to a nearby hospital. On November 29th, the Post reported that the assassination was carried out by a highly trained hit squad of 62 people pouncing in six vehicles after the local power supply was cut. The killers included a team of 50 giving logistical support to the dirty dozen who carried out the actual ambush on Friday, sources told leading Iranian journalist Mohammed Awazi. On November 30th, the Post reported that the assassination was carried out by what an Iranian security official claims was a team of Israelis who use remote electronic devices. The Post quoted Supreme National Security Council Secretary Ali Shamkhani speaking on state television saying, quote, Unfortunately, the operation was a very complicated operation was carried out by using electronic devices. No individual was present at the site, close quote. The November 30th story added conflicting details. Quote, on Sunday, Iran's semi-official Fars News Agency said that Fakhrizadeh was wiped out by a machine gun operated by remote control, while the Arabic-language Al-Alam TV reported that the weapons used were controlled by satellite. A Reuters story offered the incredibly unlikely detail attributed to press TV. Quote, the weapons collected from the site of the terrorist act bared the logo and specifications of the Israeli Military industry. Close quote. I think we can discount this one. Here's what can't be discounted. The CIA director under Barack Obama, John Brennan, wrote this this weekend quote, This was a criminal act and highly reckless. It risks lethal retaliation and a new round of regional conflict. Iranian leaders would be wise to wait for the return of responsible American leadership on the global stage and to resist the urge to respond. Against perceived culprits. Close quote. This, regarding the killing of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh in Iran, Fakhrizadeh was Iran's top nuclear scientist. John Brennan said much the same, almost verbatim, earlier this year over the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Note carefully John Brennan's language. It is saying to the world and Iran that the U.S. is reckless, irresponsible and that lethal retaliation is a potential and legal response. Quite incredible when you think about it. We don't have anyone yet claiming the killing, and already John Brennan is blaming the United States and broadcasting its illegality and granting the notion that a lethal response or retaliation would not be unexpected or unjustified. Thought experiment number one. Can anyone recall anyone in history who served the top levels of government and blamed America for an attack on an enemy regime? Thought experiment number two. Though highly unlikely, what would the response be from someone like John Brennan if the targeting of Fakir Zarada was undertaken by Iranian dissidents? Thought experiment number three. If the Iranian nuclear deal was so good, how come it could be avoided by the Iranians in such a short time period as for them to further enrich uranium and become a nuclear threat so quickly. Were we not told the deal was so good that Obama struck because it prevented Iran from developing a nuclear weapon for 15 years? Follow the timeline that's just a little closer. Only two weeks ago, Iran began enriching uranium with advanced centrifuges it installed in an underground Natanz nuclear facility. This, according to an International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, report. The report states, quote, On 14 November 2020, the agency verified that Iran began feeding UF6, which is uranium hexafluoride, into the recently installed Cascade 174 IR2M centrifuges at the fuel enrichment plant in Natanz, close quote. The report comes nearly a week after the IE. A, excuse me, IAEA's revelation that Iran had completed the transfer of the above cascade from an above-ground plant to the underground facility at Natanz. All of this was impermissible. So too was the fact that the IAEA several times tried to, wanted to, interview Fakir and Iran's government never complied. In response to all of the above, the head of the IAEA, Rafael Grossi, stated publicly that Iran was not being credible. His words, credible. Now, do recall what former Secretary of State John Kerry said about the nuclear deal, as I think it is the most important part of the deal. We gave tens of billions of dollars to Iran to get them to sign off on the nuclear deal in 2015. A year later on CNBC, John Kerry was asked if that money could be used to fund terrorism. Here's his exact answer, quote, John Kerry, quote, I think that some of it will end up in the hands of the IRGC or other entities, some of which are labeled terrorists, you know, to some degree, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every component of that can be prevented, close quote. Good thing we weren't at war with terrorists or terrorism. Good thing we weren't funding them. But we were, and we were. And one wonders if John Brennan or anyone in the putative and prospective Biden administration thinks the same or if they think the greater world danger is the United States headed by a Republican president. It is a little absurd that we have to keep reminding the antagonists against America in America about Iran every time they use that country as a wedge against the United States or a Republican president. Let me put it plainly. We are not the problem. Repression Religious fundamentalism, human rights depredation, and terrorism are the problem. And when they are all wrapped into one toxic bundle or veil, the problem is much the worse, despite so-called experts who keep saying we are not at war with Iran. They are right to a degree, but to a very chilling degree. Iran has been at war with us, we not with them. This is the country that created explosionary devices that killed over 600 Americans in Iraq. This is the country that aided Dr. Assad in killing hundreds of thousands of Syrians. This is the country that invaded Yemen and killed thousands there. This is the country that attacked a U.S. base in Kirkuk. This is a country that opens parliament shouting death to the United States, death to America. For 40 years, they have declared war against the United States. It started by taking over the U.S. Embassy and holding 52 American hostages for 444 days. In two different bombings in 1983, they killed 260 Americans in Lebanon. In 1988, they bombed the USS Samuel Roberts. This is a country that still holds U.S. hostages. This is a country that tortured and killed Americans from William Buckley to Robert Stetham. On television. And of course, there was the bombing of U.S. servicemen at the Khobar Towers, killing 19 Americans. And for those of you who think they didn't work with Al Qaeda, every intelligence report says they did. Quote, in late 1991 or 92, as I am quoting from page 62 of the bipartisan 9 11 Commission report, quote, discussions in Sudan between Al Qaeda and Iran led to an informal agreement to cooperate in providing support, even if only training, for actions carried out primarily against Israel and the United States. Still quoting, not long afterwards, senior al-Qaeda operatives and trainers traveled to Iran to receive training in explosives. Still quoting, in the fall of 1993, another such delegation went to the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon for further training in explosives, as well as in intelligence and security. Still quoting, bin Laden reportedly showed particular interests in learning how to use truck bombs, such as the one that killed over 200 Marines in Lebanon in 1983. The relationship between Al Qaeda and Iran, still quoting, demonstrated that Sunni Shia divisions did not pose an insurmountable barrier to cooperation in terrorist operations. As will be described in Chapter 7, the report writes Al Qaeda contacts with Iran continued in ensuing years, close quote. If you want to know you're in the presence of someone who doesn't know what they're talking about, listen for them to say Iran is Shiite and doesn't work with Sunnis. It's false. Ask yourself why Iran funds Hamas, a Sunni organization. Or shall we go to that Chapter 7 of the 9-11 Commission report? How about this, quote, Intelligence indicates the persistence of contacts between Iranian security officials and senior al-Qaeda figures after bin Laden's return to Afghanistan. Khalad, who masterminded the bombing of the USS Cole, has said that Iran made a concerted effort to strengthen relations with al-Qaeda after the October 2000 attack on the USS Cole. Khalad and other detainees have described the willingness of Iranian officials to facilitate the travel of al-Qaeda members through Iran on their way to and from Afghanistan. For example, Iranian border inspectors would be told not to place telltale stamps in the passports of these travelers. Such arrangements were particularly beneficial to al-Qaeda. Close quote. The report goes on. So does the writing of Lawrence Wright in the looming, looming tower. So does the Senate Intelligence Committee report. Of course, few talk about the Iran plot to set off a bomb in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. in December of 2011. But it's there, and you can research it. Can you imagine if that was not thwarted? Thank God it was. By the way, do you know whose idea that bombing was? Qasem Soleimani. The only thing that was reported rightly by the mainstream today media today was we don't know how Iran will react. We don't. But the idea they will take up arms has it backwards. They've been doing that for more than 40 years. We've been the ones not at war. Now, one of the reasons I asked for thought experiment number two above as to what John Brennan and others would be saying if it were actually Iranian dissidents who killed Dr. Fakir Azadeh, I asked because there was such a movement and it was crushed in 2009 with the help of President Barack Obama, who gave the green light to Iran to crush it, saying, quote, we would not meddle in Iranian affairs, even as he had no problem meddling with allies helping to topple the leadership of Egypt turning Libya into Swiss cheese and, of course, lecturing Israel on its border policy. The thought experiment, in other words, is an impossibility because thanks to Barack Obama and Joe Biden, Iran liquidated its internal democratic opposition. Why so much time on this? Because the world is still a dangerous place. And despite media and Democratic Party claims that Donald Trump isolated America and her allies, the truth is just the opposite. Nobody spoke of Barack Obama and Joe Biden isolating our allies, though that's exactly what they did in what used to be known as Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Does anyone remember the sweat we caused the consciences of Europe from Lech Wałęsa to Vaclav Havel, who wrote an open letter to the United States when Barack Obama was president? Here are some of that letter they signed, 20 years after the end of the Cold War, however, we see that Central and Eastern Europe countries are no longer at the heart of American foreign policy. As the Obama administration sets its priorities, our region is one part of the world that Americans have largely stopped worrying about. They went on in their letter to criticize that lack of worrying and the effort to reset relations with Russia at the expense of helping formerly Eastern European countries, which included the dismantling of missile defense in Europe that would have protected their countries in order to appease Russia. Today, nobody recalls any of that because the Democrats turned about on Russia in order to allege that it helped Donald Trump win his 2016 election. But make no mistake about it. Foreign policy under Obama was pro-Russia and so much so it dismantled our Europe's, ours and Europe's missile defense there and even waged rhetorical war against Republicans who warned that appeasing Russia was a bad idea. Recall when Mitt Romney said that in debating Barack Obama in 2012 and Obama quipped the 1980s are calling Mitt, asking for their foreign policy back. Well, today the 2009s, 2010s, 2011s, 2012s, 2013s, 2014s, and 2015s are calling and asking for their foreign policy back. And I don't think it will be a good thing when that phone is answered. I know most talk about this past election was about domestic policy and issues. After all, the foreign policy problems were hard to criticize. That gives you some idea of the success of the Donald Trump presidency. Not much to criticize there on the foreign policy front. But watch him. Kerry is back and Biden is back. And so are so many others of the architects of their failure. America may feel wobbly here at home. It looks and looks to look even more wobbly abroad. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Hope you had a great holiday, Bill. Remind me, we need to do a philosophical lesson today in obligations, and we will use as our starting point, as our springboard, our parking garage. Obligations—they, they are the juice, which is required, the fuel which re- is required for any society wanting to call itself civilized to run on we'll come back to that i got an email saying seth you used to do this um this uh this list of covid statistics paradigm of covid statistics and you haven't done them in a while and it seems with everyone losing their heads it would be a good time to do them again and that listener was right i haven't done them in a while i don't know why just uh other things have intruded So using CDC data from today, herewith. There have been 189.6 million COVID tests in the United States. 14.9 million were positive. 174 plus million were negative. That's a 7.8 positivity rate, which is down from last week. There have been... 273.6 thousand deaths with COVID. That death rate as a percentage of positive tests is 1.8% down from last month, which is what you want. That death rate as a percent of all tests is one-tenth of a percent. In a population of 331 million people, That gives you a mortality rate of 0.08, that is to say eight hundredths of a percent, which means your chance of not dying is 99.92%. Your chance of not dying is 99.92%. Will you see that in a headline? No, you will not. It's interesting um, that New York City is going through whiplash on reopening its schools, just about a week after it said it was closing them, once it crossed the uh, 3% threshold, a statistic uh, that was invented, it seems, by either the uh, teachers unions in New York or the mayor himself. There's no scientific reason to close schools when you have a 3% infection rate. Um, but they are now going to be reopened. And I wonder, just wonder, if it may have to do with Anthony Fauci saying over the weekend, close schools. The bars open the schools. Schools are just about the safest place a child can be. I I just wonder. I just wonder if every decision is now farmed out to the sage on Mount Olympus in D.C. named Anthony Fauci. Whatever he says goes. A man no one had heard of. Well, some had. But a man most had never heard of until this year. Oh, I know what. Guess what? Guess who will be the man of the year this year for time? I bet it's Anthony Fauci. I bet it is. I bet it is. Just occurred to me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. 34 past the hour brings us John Dombrowski with our culture and economy update. He, John, of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, grandcanyonplanning.com, the website. Hi, John.
1: You had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yeah, I hope you did, too. We did. Good. Yes. So what's happening what today? What is happening yes.
0: is uh, we're celebrating this day in history, the birth of Winston Churchill.
1: Yeah, so we had a couple of births and we had a death too. We also had the birth of uh, Mark Twain in 1835 as well. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. This e- is this is uh, this is a pregnant day, one might say.
1: <laughs> and we also had a death
0: though. Who did e- who died?
1: Evil Knievel.
0: Oh, when did he pass?
1: Uh, let's see. He passed away uh, 2007 at the age of 69 only.
0: I had one of those evil Knievel toys. Did mm-hmm. you, do you remember seeing those? Oh, yes. You, round, you, you kind of wound it up on a thing, and then he was on his motorcycle, and he would jump across whatever you wanted, buses. Yep, yep. yep. I heard and a comedian say, you know, these are great feats, but... What would be more impressive is if you could get a bus to jump over 80 motorcycles.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> now, he did say one thing. He said, you can't ask a guy like me why. I just really wanted to fly through the air. That yeah. was his, his thing. He just loved, loved that, yeah. uh, obviously, uh, what he did. So good for him. Good for him, I yes. wish we could all say that. Right? Everybody, Wouldn't it be nice if everybody could say... You know, I really just truly love what I do because when you do love what you do for work, it really isn't. I think
0: it's hard. I'd love to have this conversation with you in depth. Yeah,
1: I think it's really hard. Uh, And I think
0: it's um, I you know, I think you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think probably 80 percent plus of people don't necessarily love what they do. Their job is not their life. Their job is what they use to pay their bills.
1: That's very true. And the thing is, I think we as uh, humans, we have this uh, grass is always greener yeah. type of mentality, yeah. right? Yeah. And in reality, when you think about it, it's what do they say?
0: I I, I disagree with people who say love yeah. your job yeah. or learn to love your job or find right. a job you love. I don't think I'm in on board with that. Yeah.
1: That's an interesting— I think it sets up an
0: expectation for too much unemployment, quite honestly. Whenever we I think it's a rarity. I think it's a rarity.
1: Well, it it helps me because that maybe moves people into retirement a lot earlier. Well, there you go. And I can help them with that. So— There you go.
0: Uh, What's what's big in the news? Uh, United. Yes. Do you buy stock in United or buy stock in
1: Pfizer? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you did see Moderna came out with yep. some additional right. um, testing in their uh, final phase, of, the third phase of testing, came out with ninety four point five percent, I think, FSC, FSC, efficacy? efficacy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, easy for you. Success. To say. <laughs> yes, and um, so again, we saw that stock jump uh, quite a bit today. So. You know, I think you probably at this point, if there's a little momentum, it's going to be more with the drug companies than the airlines. Yeah, Um, I think. But, uh, yeah, we are seeing uh, Pfizer shipping their vaccine uh, around the world, actually. So uh, we'll see what happens here. But actually into Chicago today. And, uh, of course, it has to be kept cold. And they're doing that. They've got the cold storage uh capabilities yep. and that's what they're doing and as soon as they get this final approval this emergency approval from the fa uh from the FDA. food and drug administration yeah. mm-hmm. fda not the FAA. right
0: <laughs> that's united again yeah. right <laughs> <laughs>
1: um then hopefully we're going to start to see uh, some people actually receiving the vaccine
0: and do we think we'll see markets move up if
1: indeed we do get a uh, a new spending bill You know, I believe that that would be a real positive for the market. There's no question about that, Seth. Um, As well as if we start to see these vaccines being, uh, you know, given to individuals and we're starting to see a success from them. This Uh is going to really just uh, make people feel better, spend more money, and uh, hopefully get the economy. Even though the economy has been moving and the markets have been performing, I think this could be a real boost. Some of that may already be priced in to the market. But overall, it certainly couldn't hurt. Right.
0: That's what I I, I, I take your lead on this um, and I'll follow your lead on it. I'm a little surprised it didn't happen already, mm-hmm. uh, at least since the election, uh, November 3rd. I was I kind of thought it would happen fairly quickly. They don't have a lot of time to do it. But uh, my my observation was I didn't think Nancy Pelosi wanted to
1: greenlight it until after the election, lest it look like a success. And, and we may start to see it here. I mean, yeah. we, we talked about it. You know, what are they looking times? at? One
0: point four trillion, something like that. Right. But I All still right.
1: think the Republicans are you know looking in the seven hundred thousand range, but I they're, they're still quite quite a distance apart. But maybe they'll get this through this time. Well, it needs to be done. It needs it to needs be done. to
0: be done. And yeah. even if you were to just give a twelve hundred dollar check to everyone who's eighteen or older, you could do that for about a fourth of the price tag, maybe a fifth. But so, not the student loans. That's that we correct. At. We want we, to. I want to talk to you about student loans. Yeah, we loans could talk about, Can we talk about that
1: tomorrow. Talk about that. If someone would like to call and talk about their financial future with me, happy to do that. Go to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com Securities and advisory services offered to Client Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and an investment advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates, LLC, Client One Securities, LLC, not affiliated. Thanks, John. Thank you, Seth. All right. Talk tomorrow. Bye-bye.
0: Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, Byron York had a good column this morning, kind of interesting, um, showing uh, that the putative Biden administration uh, – where it's uh, going to put its emphasis or where it wants its emphasis, at least um, on, 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 on policy positions in that we have not seen anything about a secretary of defense, but we have seen former Biden officials, Obama-Biden officials, as I said in my monologue, uh, condemning the situation out of Iran, except for an interesting column in the New York Times today uh well yesterday i guess it was uh from thomas friedman thomas friedman uh is a, is a left-wing foreign policy writer i think he's won the pulitzer three times if i'm not mistaken and he is praising donald trump's foreign policy in this column uh trump's most significant foreign policy achievement he says is what he did in the middle east and if what john brennan said as i quoted earlier condemning uh, what took place in the killing in Iran, uh, killing of the nuclear physicist. Um, if that is going to serve as some sort of springboard for Biden to try and renegotiate or open, re- uh, open negotiations up with Iran again, as he has said he wanted to, uh, Friedman is telling him uh, to be wary. Uh, go slow. Things have changed uh, so much in the last four years in the Middle East that um, the Trump administration has really realigned a lot of the Middle East. It ain't what it used to be. It ain't what you think it was. And the nuclear issue, um, concerning though it is to most people, Friedman writes, also is not perhaps the most pressing issue when it comes to Iran. It is their precision-guided missiles and uh, what they are doing um, there, uh, what Iran is able to do with their precision-guided missiles and what they might export. To other terrorist organizations, namely Hezbollah, that that would be the bigger deal um, for Biden to work on if Biden is the president, if his team can get around their ID fix, you know their fixation that um, to get Iran to comply, you have to just sign a piece of paper. the signing of a piece of paper, the signing of a piece of paper that was one of the great lessons. That uh, we learned from the man whose birthday it is today, Winston Churchill. that is uh, one of the main lessons we learned from Winston Churchill is that papers signed by the bloodthirsty, by the dictatorial, by the tyrant, are not worth the ink printed on those pieces of paper. Uh, Neville Chamberlain, of course, had signed in Munich. Uh, a pact with Adolf Hitler of Germany and proclaimed it peace in our time. Winston Churchill said it will be war in our time. This pact will be war in our time because we will trust um, Hitler based on this piece of paper and we have no reason to trust him. In fact, you have to understand Hitler, not what he signs on a piece of paper and promises to do to engage in serious foreign policy. And that's why I think the major lesson of Winston Churchill is today the most important one and the most ignored engaging in relationships, engaging in diplomacy with dictators. I think it's a generally horrible idea and I can't think of very many examples where it's worked out in the long run. Um, can't think of any examples where it's worked out in the long run. Leo Strauss, great political philosopher of the uh, second half of the twentieth century, Alan Bloom's teacher, Harry Jaffa's teacher, others spoke extemporaneously when to his class at the University of Chicago when he heard of Churchill's death, and Strauss's students, like perhaps students of great religious teaching or learning, great rabbis and priests, I don't know, maybe they write down everything they say. Students of Strauss wrote down everything he said, and they captured what he said the day he was told Churchill died. And Leo Strauss said, The death of Churchill reminds us of the limitations of our craft and therefore our duty. We have no higher duty and no more pressing duty than ourselves and our students of political greatness Human greatness, of the peaks of human excellence, for we are supposed to train ourselves and others in seeing things as they are. And this means, above all, in seeing their greatness and their misery, their excellence and their vileness, their nobility and their triumphs. And therefore, never to mistake mediocrity, however brilliant, for true greatness. Right? This has been my plea ever since I've been privileged to sit in front of a microphone or speak into one, is that we do have a duty to train ourselves to see things as they really are in their greatness and their misery, in their excellence and in their vileness, and never to mistake the two. But to have a realistic sense of what the craft of politics is and political science is, You have to see things for what they truly are. Not necessarily how you want them to be. Not necessarily what sounds the most interesting and intriguing. Not necessarily that which even sounds the most promising. But what in reality is the possible? What is in reality the rational? That's what Strauss taught. That's what Churchill taught. I don't think we can have better guidance Than that. We don't cling to false hopes. We don't cling to false messiahs or um, put above political leadership um, the expectation of a messiah. And we don't fall for hoaxes and conspiracy theories. That's all the business of the left. That's what they do. That's what they do with ideology. That's what they do with elected officials. And that's what they do in the media and with the news and in the marching orders to their troops on the streets. They're the ones who traffic in that stuff. It's harder to fight against, but we want nothing to do with it. First and foremost, so that we can be right. Secondly, so that we can be taken seriously. And I think over the long term, we can be. I don't really give two hoots whether Thomas Friedman likes Donald Trump's foreign policy or not. What matters is, did it work and did it mean something? And if someone like Thomas Friedman can divorce himself on occasion from his ideological blinders and see something positive in what Donald Trump did, I'm going to grasp it and I'm going to tell you about it. And the reason I'm going to is because so few will. So few leftist liberals will do so. And it is what he did in the Middle East, a crowning Achievement. I saw former Democrat Senator Max Baucus on TV earlier today just spouting and spouting and spitting about the Middle East and saying how you just cannot have these side deals with Arab states without including the Palestinians. Why not? We did it. What is he clinging on to? What is he holding on to? Of course we can. It's been done and it changed everything for the better. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Journal of the American Medical Association just put out a study. It's chilling. <coughs> it's chilling. Having to do with school closings. Missed instruction during 2020. Missed instruction out of class time time during 2020 could be associated, I'm quoting directly, with an estimated 5.53 million years of life lost. The loss in life expectancy greater than would have been observed if leaving primary schools open had even led to an expansion of the first wave of the pandemic. The closings of schools, according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, was a worse decision than leaving them open and will lead to more loss of life. I was reading a column in the New York in um, NBC online today and it's generally not a wonderful column but it does tell us this from this physician We are now observing that previously controlled chronic conditions like hypertension type 2 diabetes and arthritis and migraines are flaring Psychological and behavioral vulnerabilities probed by pandemic fear and uncertainty are now surfacing. A study just published in the Journal of the American Medical Association revealed a threefold increase, 300 percent increase in depressive symptoms. The disaster distress hotline of the U.S. government substance abuse and mental health services administration reports a 900 percent increase and calls to its suicide hotline. Child abuse is increasing, and drug overdose deaths are up by 42%. We proud of this? Every one of these decisions has been argued against. Every one of these decisions has been met with protest, and everyone who argued against them and protested them was labeled a covid denier we're not deniers every one of us was called anti-science we're not anti-science we're begging you we are begging you to look at all the science all of it we've looked at yours look at ours